0: I have a question for you. How many of you would want to live here? Raise your hands. How many of you would like to live in this house? Nobody? Okay, hang on. So you get your own personal chef, right? Some maids to, to take care of everything, cleaning. I don't think you're going to be doing much cleaning if you are the primary resident of this household. A movie theater. Um, they've over the years had bowling alleys there, They have basketball courts, Tennis courts, swimming pool. Come on, somebody raise your hand. No? You guys are wiser than I realized. I thought somebody would, at least one person, would get excited about living in the White House. But apparently you've been watching the news or something. I don't know. But listen to this. All right, this is from the 27th President of the United States speaking to the next President of the United States. William Howard Taft said this. This is the loneliest place in the world. Hold up. The most powerful person in the world is living there, and he's saying this is the loneliest place in the world. Well, he was telling this to Woodrow Wilson. Woodrow Wilson apparently didn't get it at first, and he said this later on. He said, whoops, I never dreamed such loneliness and desolation of heart possible. Mercy. All right, so I Assuming many of you won't be campaigning to be president soon, uh, recently or not not so recently actually, Harry Truman said it this way: "My family and myself would be happy outside this great white jail known as the White House. Mercy, so you didn 't realize that the, the White House is like a dra- jail for the president, and more recently, Barack Obama said about former presidents, as he was entering into office, he said, this is what the presidents have been saying to me. All of them recognize there's a certain loneliness to the job. One person whose job it was to take photographs in the White House captured this famous photo of John F. Kennedy as he was bending over his desk, and it later was coined by the New York Times as the loneliest job in the world. He was leaning over his table, reading an editorial in the Times, and after the photographer took the photo, he noticed him as he shifted around the room, and he got up and he said, where in the world did the guy get this who wrote this? As He was reading the, the terrible things that were written about him in the paper. The loneliest job in the world, a prison, a place that nobody would want to be, although a lot of people try really hard to get there. It reminds me of a man a little bit further back who was the most powerful man of his time. As he lay sleeping in his bed, you can pick up the story in Daniel chapter 2 with me where we pick up the story of a man named Nebuchadnezzar. We've seen a little bit about him already. He's ransacked Jerusalem. He's, he's taken, well, he hasn't fully ransacked it yet, but he has at least taken captives. And he's taken vessels out of the temple and he's put them into the treasure house of his God to say, my God's bigger than your God. My God's better than yours. And now, look at what happens in Daniel chapter 2. As he's sleeping in his palace, this beautiful place of Babylon, he's known foremost. And the foremost thing that we know about Nebuchadnezzar is that he was a builder. He conquered Egypt and all these other areas. He was the, the ruler of the known world at the time. But we know even more so that he was a builder. Look at what he dreams about though. Daniel chapter two and verse one says, now in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams and his spirit was so troubled that his sleep left him. What's going on in the heart of Nebuchadnezzar? What are some of the emotions that are going on here? His spirit is troubled and he has insomnia. His sleep left him. He's not able to continue his sleep that night. So we see that Nebuchadnezzar is troubled, He's maybe the most powerful man in the world, but he's troubled, and he can't sleep. Let's keep going. Verse 2. Then the king gave the command to call the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king, and the king said to them, I have had a dream, and my spirit is... Let's follow along. My spirit is anxious to know the dream. He's troubled, he can't sleep and he's anxious. You know, they say that the, the place at the top is actually the loneliest. It's the place where you feel the least support, where you can have the, the least close of friendships. We continue reading that what well, we see here that he's anxious and he's also searching for answers. He's calling everybody that he knows to call for answers, the Chaldeans, the astrologers, and hoping that they can give him an answer of what he dreamed. Then verse five, the king answered Well, this is after they say, Well, tell us the dream, and we'll tell you the interpretation of it. So the king answered and said to the Chaldeans, My decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me and its interpretation, you shall be cut in pieces, and your houses shall be made an ash heap. How many of you want to work for this guy? (laughs) Want to be in close counsel with him? Goes on to say in verse 6 However, if you tell the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards, and great honor. Therefore, tell me the dream and its interpretation. Tell me, tell me what it was that I dreamed, and tell me what it means. Do you see how this guy rules? Do you see how he exercises his authority? He may be the most powerful man in the world, but, but what is it that he uses with his closest circle in order to get them to give him what he wants? There's two things, right? What was it first? Threats. He, he used the fear of punishment. I will turn you and your family and everybody else into ashes if you don't tell me what I want to know. Right? He said, I'm going to use all my power to destroy you. Or I'll give you huge rewards if you just do what I'm asking you to do. It's the fear of punishment or the hope of reward. We see that he rules by punishment or bribery, which tells us something about his subjects, right? Can you love a guy like that? Do you think that his close counselors loved Nebuchadnezzar? Probably not so much, right? They're scared for their lives, or they're hoping to get rich. But there's no love there. Their subjects are motivated by fear or greed. The loneliest place in the world, some say, is at the top. Well, the king answered and said, as they again, again tell him, well, just tell us the dream. You've got to tell us this. I know for certain that you would gain time because you see that my decision is firm. If you do not make known my dream to me, there is only one decree for you. For you have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the time has changed. Therefore, tell me the dream and I shall know that you can give me its interpretation. How does he feel about his closest circle? His, his most intimate friends, you might say, those in the court that he tr- he's supposed to trust and rely upon, what's he thinking about them? It's like, you guys are speaking lie and corrupt words to me. You're conniving behind my back. He's filled with suspicion and criticism, a lack of trust for the people that are closest to him, the only people in the world that he could possibly trust. And these He doesn't see that he can trust. So we see that he's filled with suspicions. He's suspicious of his closest counselors. Did you know that we're living in the midst of a loneliness epidemic in the United States? It's not just the people at the top. This is from 2018. Cigna, uh, which is with Harvard or UCLA and Harvard, they they studied 20,000 United States adults and they found that most Americans consider themselves lonely. This is in 2018. They found that 56% of Americans, over half found themselves lonely. 2019 it was up to 61%. And then 2020 and 2021 hit, and loneliness has skyrocketed. Some of those same feelings that, that are in the heart of Nebuchadnezzar. You know, so often I've read this story and I've I've focused in on the prophecy, which we're going to get to that in a couple of weeks. But When I read this story, I suddenly see that here is a man who is miserable. He may be on top of the world. He may have it all together as far as ruling and conquering and building, but he's troubled. He's anxious. He's unloved. He's alone. Loneliness hurts. The world is filled with loneliness, and some people pinpoint our devices and say it's that. Maybe it's our social media. You, you scroll through, and you see everybody else is happy, and they, they pinpoint the best moments in their life, and they put them on their page or their feed, and you see that, and you say, what's wrong with me? I'm miserable. My life is, is worthless, and you feel lonely. Here's Anne Hathaway, who won uh, an Oscar not too long ago, said, She said this loneliness is my least favorite thing about life. The thing that I'm most worried about is just being alone without anybody to care for or someone who will care for me. She's at the top. She's, She's won this incredible award, and the thing that scares her most, the thing that she's worried about most, is not to have somebody that cares about her or somebody that she can care for. You may have all the wealth, you may have all the treasures in the world. But like Nebuchadnezzar, you can feel dreadfully alone, simply looking for somebody to care for, somebody to love, simply looking for a friend. So verse 10, the Chaldeans answered the king and said, there is not a man on earth who can tell the king's matter. Therefore, no king, lord, or ruler has ever asked such things of any magician, astrologer, or Chaldean. You're crazy, king. This is, this is impossible. There is not a single person on the planet who could possibly answer this. We can't do this. You see, the wise men, they see that they have no hope in their abilities. Isn't it a good thing to recognize human weakness, to realize that we don't have the answers, that we don't know the way forward? They're in a good place so far in their answer. But notice how terrible it gets right after this. It is a difficult thing that the king requests. Don't miss this. And there is no other who can tell it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is what? Did you get that? Except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. The the gods don't care about us. They don't live with us. They're not here with us. The gods are not going to help us. They're the only ones who could, but they won't. That was their picture of God. That's what they understood about God. Is this the truth? Do the gods have No connection. Are they distant from humanity? Do they care about what you're going through? As you come to church and you're bearing all these burdens, do they care about what you've been through the past week? Well, you know, those gods didn't. I told you the first time around about the chief god was Marduk, and he became the supreme deity by killing Tiamat, and through her remnants creating, this is the Enuma Elish, if you want to read it, you can find it online, uh, she th- was destroyed, and through her, the remnants of the gods that he had killed, he created humanity. And after creating humanity, he made them serve the gods and do the work that the gods didn't want to do anymore. That's the type of gods that the Chaldeans believed in, the wise men believed in. And sadly, Christians can fall into the same thing. You see, there was something called the dark ages where Christians were walking up and down, uh, were kneeling in order to go up and down stairs in order to find a God who would possibly forgive them, who were whipping themselves, flogging themselves, doing whatever it took to get the, gods, the God to favor them. We can fall into the same trap as Christians in thinking that, that God is distant, that he's not close to us, that he doesn't care about what we're going through. That's not the reality. If only they had recognized the beauty that's revealed throughout the Hebrew scriptures. Exodus 25 and verse 8, God comes to those children in the wilderness and says, This, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may what? (laughs) Dwell among them. He first created them in a garden where he could walk with them, and when he came walking, they're running away from him. And so when you get to this time, he says, Make a sanctuary. So that I can come and I can dwell with my people. that I can come close to humanity again. Psalm 23. Again, these are, are, are things that were available at the time. David lived before this time and he said this. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? You know this verse. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for... You or thou are with me. God is with me. I don't have to be afraid. And then he goes on to say, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemy. My cup overflows. You think about how maybe this was running through Daniel's mind as he's dealing with all that he's going through in Babylon. God's going to prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. And the final verse says, surely goodness and mercy will pursue me, will follow me all the days of my life. Maybe this is what gave Daniel courage in Babylon. Maybe it was the contemporary prophet Isaiah who said this. Isaiah 43, 2 and 5. When you pass through the waters, I will... I will what? I will be with you. And we'll look at the next verses later on. But since you are precious in my sight, and I love you. Is this a God who's distant... Is this a God who's got to be appeased in order to come close to you? Is this a God who who doesn't want your best? Notice, fear not, for I am with you. We could could go on and we could look at how Isaiah goes on to prophesy and say, you're going to have a child, and that's going to be uh, a, a prophecy in miniature, Isaiah 7, of in, of, of the coming Messiah. And you're going to name him. What, what was the name that, that he was to give to the child? Emmanuel. Meaning God with us. Meaning that God comes down and he comes close and he comes to dwell with human face. Flesh. John chapter 1. Jesus comes and he tabernacled among us. He dwelt with us. God is close to humanity. That's the picture that we get in the Bible. But the wise men, they see no hope in their abilities, and they also believe that the gods are distant and uncompassionate towards humans. They're capricious. They don't care. They're greedy. They just want the gods, they just want humans to serve them for what they'll get out of humans. Now, we fast forward, and we find out that the king is very upset by this, by the response of the Chaldeans and the astrologers. Verse 12. For this reason, the king was angry and very furious and gave the command to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. He's lonely and he's really upset. He's suspicious of his closest counselors and he goes on to become rageful and resorts to force for self preservation. You see, he's acting out his picture of God. He believes that the gods are operating on this punishment or reward mentality. And so he's doing the same with his people. And he believes that the gods will destroy those who don't please them. And so when his closest counselors don't please him, he's acting out on that. And he is going to destroy those who are closest to him. Verse 13, so the decree went out and they began killing the wise men. And this is bad news because in the end of chapter one, we find that Daniel and his friends after what we talked about last week, after the three years of indoctrination into learning all the wealth of knowledge of the, the Chaldeans, which included all this stuff that whatever they would do in order to, to foretell dreams and to figure all these things out, they're going through all of this schooling. And at the end of that three years, they have more wisdom than all of the other astrologers. In fact, it says, and wise men, it says, 10 times as much. It's probably using hyperbole, but they were, they were extremely uh, gifted by God with wisdom. And so it says that they sat in the court of the king or they stood before the king to counsel him. Now they're one of the wise men by the, the uh, gift of God. And now what does it go on to say? And they sought to Daniel and his companions to kill them. Notice that word companions. We're going to come back to that. It appears a few more times here. We'll continue on here. Daniel is a captive in a foreign land we talked about last week. He's separated from his family. He's been castrated. He's a eunuch. He has no, no hope of a future family. He's enduring indoctrination in this school in Babylon, and the courts of Babylon. And he can't go to church. Do you think about that? He's now in Babylon where there's no church for him to go to. There's no temple for him to go to. Synagogues came about during the exile, but at this point, there is no synagogue in Babylon for him to go to. He's got no opportunity to go to church. He's alone. And he's got no future hope of a family that can be together with him. And now, he's facing a death decree. If anybody should feel alone, it probably was Daniel. Uh, out of anybody in that, that whole group in the court scene and the wise men, if anybody should have felt alone, maybe it should have been Daniel because of all that he'd been through. It could have been Daniel. But notice when, the, the king, when they come, Daniel answers with wisdom and discretion. He says, hang on, let me go to the king. In verse 16 it says, so Daniel went in and asked the king to give him what? Give him time. Friends, when life is crazy for you, when you don't know the way forward, when you feel alone, the best place to go is time with God. It may seem too simple. It may seem like it's, it, it's not going to solve, how, how could that possibly solve the problems in my life? But take time. The wise men were desperately trying to figure out the answers on their own. They're like, if you could just tell us the dream, then we could go to all of our conniving ways and and figure out something for you. Daniel says, just give me some time with God. That he might tell the king the interpretation. So Daniel recognizes need for time with God. Then Daniel went to his house and he made known the decision to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions. Do you remember what the name Hananiah means? God, or Yahweh, is gracious. So he goes to his companions, the one who's named God is gracious, to Mishael, the one who's, we belong to God, or who is like our God. And to Azariah, Yahweh is our help. If, if ever they needed help from Yahweh... It was probably today. And this is why we're, we're still seeing the, the Hebrew name used here, even though they're, they've broken into the Aramaic part of Daniel, and, and they could be using the Babylonian names, but here we see their Hebrew names are bringing out the character of our God. He's gracious. We belong to him. We, he is our help. And he goes to his what? His companions. His friends. Three times this, this Aramaic word is used in this passage to denote the the close relationship that Daniel had with these three friends in captivity. We know it. Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they came together. You see, there's something really special when we are going through crisis, when we're facing difficult times, when we have spiritual friends that we can come close to, when we have a small group of people that we can reach out to, that we can ask to pray for us, that we can seek God together with. And I want to encourage you to do whatever it takes to grab people and come together in a small group. You can join us on Wednesday. We have a small group that meets right here in the lobby at 11. You can join us at the farm at 5.30. Just this past week at the farm, somebody who came to that small group was saying, you know, this is my group. This helps me so much because we talk about life and we, it helps me process. And she was processing some really big things in her life. And you need spiritual friends to not feel alone. You might be thinking, well, that'd be great. I'd love that. I encourage you to do whatever it takes to find friendships like that. And if you don't have an idea for that, come talk to me. I'd love to help you start a small group or to start a small group with you or to help somebody else or help you find a small group, but come talk to me about it. I'd love to help you make sure that you have companions for the journey through life so that you're not alone. Nobody needs to walk alone We can all have people that we can walk alongside with. So we see that he recognized the need for time with God and for a small group of spiritual friends. Not just any type of group, but people that he could go to with this problem and seek God with. Now notice what they do, okay? This is probably one of the most important parts. You ready for this? Verse 18, that they might seek what? Okay, don't just go and find a small group that's, it's great to go jogging together, but make sure that you also have people that you're seeking the what together with? The mercies from God. You want to find out that your God is merciful. The word here is racham. Well, that's the Hebrew version of the word. Aramaic and Hebrew are very closely related. And that word is the word that is used to describe basically a woman's womb where a baby can form. It's, it's womb-like compassion, it, but it's, it's the action that comes out of this throughout the Bible that is inspiring. You know, when the Israelites are enslaved in Egypt, it's God's compassion his womb-like compassion that stirs him to rescue them out of Egypt when they're going through the wilderness and they're struggling in the wilderness and they need help it's God's compassion that that shields them and that comes to help them with what they're going through and Daniel would have known the prophecies of Isaiah 49 that says can a woman forget her nursing child they might forget I won't forget you. I have a compassion greater than a nursing mother for you. They went to seek the mercy of God concerning the secret. They went to a friend who was able to reveal. Friend, if you have a small group that's focused on anything else than God's loving character, I want to encourage you that that that's going to be helpful, but it's not going to be rock solid foundation for you. You can study a whole lot of things. You can study the book of Daniel and miss this. The fact is that we need to be searching for his loving and merciful character. When Moses goes and prays to God and says, show me your glory, he says, I am the Lord, the Lord God, and the first word out of God's mouth to describe himself is merciful, compassionate. This word, the Hebrew version of this word. It's essential that we seek the mercies of God together as a church family, and not just as a big group here, but you need friends that you can talk to about it, that you can sit down with, that you can pray with about it. Daniel eleven thirty two promises this, the people who know their God will be strong and carry out great exploits. When we know that our God is merciful, when we know that he's gracious, when we know that he's our help, we'll live a life of faith like Daniel. We tend to think, well, if I, if I just had enough answers, if I could just figure out enough things, if you knew who your God was, you would walk like Daniel. That's the promise of Daniel. So they sought God's mercies, his compassion together. Now, I wanted to tell you a story. Last, last uh, Tuesday, <clears throat> I went to one small group that I have, and that's with the Seventh-day Adventist pastors that are in this county in the north part of Santa Barbara County. And at the end of our meeting we began to pray for each other and we, we went around the room and said okay we're going to pray for the person on our right. So Pastor Yomar was on my right and I said what can I pray for you for? Now he's the pastor of the Napomo or Santa Maria Spanish Church and of the Lone Poke Church that's a bilingual or Spanish and English church. And he said what I really need prayer for is our Napomo church. The well isn't working. And it's going to cost us $7,000 to fix it it's a lot of money for any church especially for their church right now he said i don't know what we're going to do we're going to have to i guess just bite the bullet we're going to just have to do this so we prayed together and would you believe it just that afternoon he's texting us this video of what is happening with the well and he said look at what happened god answered our prayers he said thank you guys for praying for me And so I texted him just yesterday. I said, "Uh, is the well still working? Is this still still going on? He said, yeah, actually now it's full. And we don't have to spend the $7,000. They'd had somebody else that had come and tried to fix it. But when we sought the mercies of God together, when we prayed, God cares about wells. He cares about what you're going through. I mean, he cares about my little girls when they go to Vons, that they get the cart with the steering wheel. He answers their prayers for that. I should show a picture, I didn't have it here, but of how excited they were when God answered that prayer. He cares about your keys and he cares about the big things in your life if he cares about those little things. He's merciful, he's gracious. Let's seek him together. that they might seek the mercy, mercies from the God of heaven concerning this secret. Now, notice what verse 18 says. So that Daniel and his companions might not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. As they first go to seek the mercies of God, what is it that they're wanting to avoid? Death. And specifically the death that all the other wise men are going to die. Now, are they going to seek the mercies of God so that those wise men won't die? No. And we look at the life of Daniel and we say he lived this life that there's no recorded you know, error in his life. But I want to say that this might be the closest to one of the most egregious errors in his life. He's going to seek God's mercies, hoping that God will shield him and his friends. And he could care less about the wise men. He said, don't let us perish like the rest of these wise men. And, and who could blame him? Do you know what these wise men were like? I mean, they were people that were condemned by the Hebrew Hebrew scriptures. They're astrologers. They're people that are trying to interpret things that are divine based upon the stars. They're soothsayers. They're they're speaking with the dead. They're speaking with spirits. These are are not people that you and I would think, yeah, that's great. I want God to, I think God's going to show up for them. But not only that, they were a part of this court that had taken Daniel's people captive, had taken away his hope of a future had castrated him had taken his god's vessels holy vessels from the temple and put them in the the temple of their god they were the ones that were serving that god marduk the one that the hebrew god had been humbled before apparently so daniel says we're going to seek the mercies of our god that we might not perish along with the wise men of babylon So we see at first that they're concerned about self-preservation. Watch out for us, God. And you know, sometimes my prayers are like this. I spend a lot of time praying about me. I I spend time seeking God's mercies for me. And God is gracious and he's merciful. He just wants us to come to him. (laughs) But watch what happens when we come to him. Watch the difference that begins to happen. When Daniel... It tells us that he received a night vision that revealed to him the dream and its interpretation. The first thing that he does is this. So Daniel blessed the God of heaven and he said, blessed be the name of God. And he launches into this beautiful blessing of God. We're not going to go into detail on the blessing right now, but it says, blessed be the what of God. The name of God. When God revealed his name to Moses, he started off with saying, I am merciful. I'm the compassionate one. I'm gracious. I'm abounding in steadfast love and truth. I'm a God of justice. My name. Well, Daniel recognized that this character of God was essential for him. But notice this. Therefore, Daniel went to Ariok, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and he said this to him. Okay. After their all night prayer time together, seeking the mercies of God, what had happened to Daniel and his friends? He said, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. He didn't go to him and say, Okay, I've got the answers. Now don't destroy me. He said, Don't destroy all the wise men. God is merciful. He's beautiful. You've got to save them all. You see what happens when we come in contact with a merciful God. It changes us. We go in order to get the answers. We go because our life is a mess and we want the answers. But the reality is what God is looking to change is me. From being selfish and self-preserving to caring about everyone around me. Even my worst enemies. Notice how verse 18, he said, Lord, we don't want to perish. Or we're going to seek mercy so that we don't perish with the rest of the men of Babylon. And that's transformed to do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Steps to Christ, page 93, he says it this way. Prayer is the opening of the heart to God as to a friend. Prayer does not bring God down to us, but brings us up to him. Prayer isn't about getting what I want from a vending machine. Prayer is about coming to God being changed by God, to have his character reflected from my heart, to become merciful and compassionate like him. So we see that they go from being concerned about self-preservation to being merciful towards their enemies after seeking God's mercies and God's compassions. I need more of that, don't you? And if you want a small group that seeks God's mercies together and you need help organizing it, let me know because this is is the only thing that's going to hold us strong through all that we're going to face in our lives. Now Daniel went on to say, take me before the king, and I will tell the king the interpretation. And the king says, are you going to tell me the interpretation of this dream? And Daniel said this, Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, the secret which the king has demanded, the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, and the soothsayers cannot declare to the king. You got that right, right? There's, there's no answer from all these people. They, they don't have the answers. King, stop looking to earthly solutions. This isn't solving it for you. Now, what would have been the next words out of your mouth? I can tell you probably what would have been the next words out of my mouth. But, but king, remember, you're captive. You're threatened with death. But king, here's the deal. I can get you the answers. <laughs> I've got connections. You see, Daniel diminishes everything that was a part of the court of Babylon that was making the king so lonely. But he doesn't then pinpoint himself. Instead, we find that Daniel actually disappears in what he's saying because he says, none of the wise men can help you out. But then he goes on to say this, But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets and he has made known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the latter days. There is a God in heaven who can help you out. And he's made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the latter days. Now, some of you may be familiar with the story of Daniel 2. And we've spent a lot of time focusing in on the fact that the latter days are revealed. Who were they revealed to? Nebuchadnezzar. This wrathful, vengeful king, this king who had gone to Jerusalem, who will eventually destroy Jerusalem and the temple, who taken the implements of God and, and put them into his treasure house of his God, the one who had castrated Daniel and his friends, who was indoctrinating these people, who had changed their names to a heathen identity, this is the king that God shows up to to say, hey, here's what the future looks like. And notice, Daniel goes on to show why this is. Watch this. He points out the helplessness of humanity, makes himself disappear, points out that there is a God in heaven who reveals even to Nebuchadnezzar. And then he says this As for you, O king, thoughts came to your mind while on your bed. <laughs> in that palace, that, that loneliest place on the planet, while you were alone on your bed, thoughts came into your mind. Nebuchadnezzar's there thinking, okay, I've conquered Egypt, conquered Syria. What's next? He's alone. He doesn't have anybody he can trust. He feels like nobody cares. He's only got people who worship and adore him because of what he'll do for them or because they're scared of him. But this says that your thoughts in your mind while you're laying on your bed, you're wondering what's going to happen in the future. Maybe some of you had thoughts like that last night. Maybe this week you've been wondering, what does the future look like? What's going on? And does anybody really care? I feel like I'm so alone. Nebuchadnezzar felt alone, but Daniel's showing him, you weren't alone. Look, I'm going to tell you the fact that your thoughts, when you were laying in your bed, in your palace, all alone, there's somebody who cared about those thoughts. There's somebody who was paying attention. Notice how it goes, and he who reveals secrets has made known to you what will be. You know, we got to go to uh, look at what Jesus says in John 15, verse 15. I have called you friends for all things that I heard from my father I have made known to you. Friends reveal things to friends. What does God want to make out of Nebuchadnezzar? The enemy of God's people. He's coming to him hoping that they could become friends. He chose to reveal the dream to him. He could have revealed it to Daniel. He could have chosen any other way to go about it. But instead, he goes to this heathen king and he reveals the dream to him. It's a token of friendship. Is God merciful and gracious or what? Is he incredible? He's pursuing this this king, Nebuchadnezzar, who who has put his own vessels into the the treasure house of his God. Now notice this, verse 30. Daniel goes on to say, But as for me, the secret has not been revealed to me because I have more wisdom than anyone living. It's not because I'm wise. We often study the book of Daniel to look at how incredible Daniel is. But we're missing what Daniel actually said. What did he say about himself? Is he saying that that, that the incredible exploits that happen in this book are because of me? No. He says the secret was not revealed to me because I have more wisdom than anyone living. It's because there's an incredibly gracious God. Notice Isaiah 57, a contemporary prophet again, who said this, and Daniel probably knew it, for thus says the high and lofty When I dwell in a high and lofty place and with him who has a contrite and humble spirit. I dwell with people like Daniel, people that recognize that, that they're nothing and that I'm everything and that, that they need help from me. People who get the, both the first half of what the astrologers were saying, there's nobody who can answer you, but who also realize that the dwelling of God is with humans. He is Emmanuel, God with us. But as for me, the secret has not been revealed to me because I have more wisdom than anyone living. So, why was it revealed, Daniel? Notice this. But for our sakes, our being all of the wise men who are going to be saved because of this, for our sakes who make known the interpretation to the king, and that you may know the thoughts of your heart. The God of the universe, the one who's up in heaven, he cares about you, Nebuchadnezzar. You were worried about the future. You were tossing and turning in your bed. And he said, I've got to go down there and help Nebuchadnezzar of all people. You know, there are people that we pass by and we dismiss as saying, you know, God doesn't want to help them. They are demonic. They're worshiping the devil. There's nothing good about them. What was Nebuchadnezzar like? And God was pursuing him in love and mercy and grace saying, I'm gonna win this guy. I'm gonna get friendship from him. I want him to know that he's not alone, that I care about the thoughts in his mind, the worries, the concerns that he's going through. I care about what's going on in Nebuchadnezzar. So the Paul in Acts chapter 17, Paul is in Athens. And Acts chapter 17, verse 16 tells us that his spirit was provoked in him because he saw all the idols that they were worshiping there. In Athens, And so he decides to to have this this beautiful sermon. And in the midst of the sermon, notice what he says. He says, you're worshiping a God that you don't know when you have this altar that says to an unknown God. Let me tell you about that God. He's the creator of heaven and earth. And then he goes on to say this. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of all the earth. And has determined their boundaries in pre-appointed times, the boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him. says so every single person on this planet, including you in Athens, who are worshiping all of these idols, God has been working in your life, hoping that you'll accept his invitation to friendship, hoping that you'll want time with him, hoping that you'll seek his mercies, hoping that they might grope for him, seek for him and find him notice what he says, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. This morning you might be thinking, well, is God really close to me? Just put your hand on your heart. Is your heart beating? Are you breathing? God is close to you. In him you live and move and have your being. Whether you were worshiping Satan last night, whether you were doing the worst possible imaginable sin last night, God is still close to you. The problem with sin is that sin separates us from God. It creates, Paul says, alienation in our minds. It it separates our own hearts and minds from God. That's what Isaiah 59 verse 2 says. It hides the face of God from us. Our sins separate us from God. It's not God who's distant. It's our hearts and it's our minds. And that's why what we need is time seeking the mercies of God so that we can become connected again, so that we can turn from the sin in our life that's dragging us from Him and turn to Jesus. God is with us. In Him we move and live and breathe. He has our back. So this past week, I got a text from Leah on Tuesday, and I was working from home, out of, out of my home, and uh, she said, Livy had a bad fall. Said, I'm going to come home right now. And As she came home with Livy, I thought, okay, we're probably going to have to clean out the scrapes in her leg. and It's not going to be fun. She hates that, but okay, we'll have to do this. But as she brought Livy in, and we took her, she wouldn't stand on her leg. And then we took a look at her leg, and we, we saw right there in the middle of her left uh, shin, there's this big lump. And so we put her in the car and we said, what are we going to do? This, this looks pretty bad. She won't stand on it. She's crying. She seems, this, this isn't good. What are we going to do? So we hop in the car and we begin to drive. We said, okay, let's go, to, let's go to urgent care. So Leah's calling one urgent care. I'm calling the other. And we said, but I don't know exactly where we should go. And as we're going out the door, actually, my mom had run over, literally run, in order to come and be able to help us out because we have Abby and Nathan also at home. And as we're going out the door, Leah had said, pray that we get somebody good to help us. Pray that there'll be a good doctor to help Livy out. We said, we probably need to get an x-ray. And so we're hopping in the car. We're going. Leah's calling the one urgent care, and I'm calling the other urgent care. The one urgent care says, you're not going to be able to be seen until six 6.15 tonight. This is like 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Something like that. So that's going to be fun for her. Um, and so I was like, well, maybe, maybe we don't really need an x-ray. Maybe this is just like we were texting uh, her sister who's a nurse, and she said, maybe it's a hematoma. It's possible, but it, you probably should get an x-ray. So I thought, okay, I'll text another friend. I'll text, I'll text Dr. David and see what he has to say. So I text a picture, and I said, do, we need a, do you think we need an x-ray for this? Is this, is this bad enough? Do you think that it, it might need an x-ray? And he wasn't answering, and we weren't able to get a hold of the other urgent care, and so we said, okay, we're going to have to go to the emergency room. And I'm so thankful that the emergency room exists. We have a whole bunch of medical students here, and I'm, I'm super thankful that you work in the emergency room. It's awesome, but I don't like to take my child there, let's just be honest, because <laughs> of the time frame that it can take to get help there, because of the cost that it's going to cost us, it's just... I love that the emergency room is there, but I prefer to stay out of it. We're literally turning on to Lost Tablas, headed to the hospital when the phone rings. And David says, I'm sorry, I wasn't able to um, respond right away because I was finishing up a case. said, but uh, I got your text and you should get an x-ray. And I was standing next to Dr. Orlando, who's an orthopedic surgeon, which they work together in the surgery center there. And he's standing next to an orthopedic surgeon and sees the text and he says... What do you think of this? And shows it to Dr. Orlando. Now you know that, that when you break something, usually what happens is, at least for my case, you, you get splinted and then you wait a few days until you can go to see the orthopedic surgeon and then finally you get the, get the cast on and it's a long process and my girls simply do not enjoy that type of visit to the doctor. So he said, what do you think? And here is the miraculous part. Dr. Orlando said, we'll bring her in. I'll fit her in, and we'll check it out. We'll give her an x-ray, and we'll see what we can do. We're towards the end of the workday. In fact, we were the very last patient. We went into the office there, and I'm not telling you this so that you can text and find out the best possible ways for doctors in the community to help you out. I'm here to tell you that God is watching out for you in your situations, And, and maybe you've had to wait this past week in the ER for a really long time. God was with you in that. But well, for us and for Olivia this week, we went into that office and within two hours, we walked out, um, finding out that for sure, yes, she did have a break in her tibia, a toddler fracture, but it turns out that it's best possible scenario, I guess, for a break, if there's one of those, apparently. And then Olivia got to choose her favorite colors from for a cast And Dr. Orlando put this cast on her and sent us out as the last patient of the day. God is merciful. He's gracious. And he's watching out for the needs of your life. And I can tell you as a father, I'm happy to hold Olivia as much as she wants. She usually wants mommy to hold her right now. And Rakam means womb-like compassion. It means a a mommy-like compassion. So mommy's holding her a lot right now. As parents, we'll hold and hold and hold our child. How much more will the loving God in heaven come close to you don 't feel like he 's far from you he 's not far from you he 's just waiting for you to open your heart to him and this week, um, I can tell you something special is happening in the heart of the girl who shared the mother 's womb with Olivia. You know we came home and Abby began asking us questions and You know, twins, they like each other, they play together, they fight a lot, at least at this age. But I don't see a lot of empathy coming out of them. (laughs) Just be honest, at three years old, I haven't seen a lot of empathy, but literally, we've watched Abby tear up time and time again as she says, Well, well, how's she gonna get a bath? (laughs) And how's she gonna fit her shoe on? And will it get dirty? Does it hurt? And time and time again, she's tearing up as she sees her sister going through this. If a sister can have that type of compassion for her sister, how much more does God have compassion for you? He cares about what you're going through. He knows what you're up to. He knows the thoughts you were thinking on your bed last night. And He has the answers. And He'll show up to you whether you're worthy or not. The only question is, Will you open up your heart to him? Will you seek the mercies of God together? Will you find a small group that you can seek the mercies of God together? Will you seek friendship with God through friendship with people around you? I just want to invite you to just bow your heads as we close. Just to ask God to show you the steps forward. How can you in the life that you're living today, how can you seek his mercies together? And maybe he'll impress upon you some specific people in your life people that you could reach out to to form a small group or or that you should try to start another small group for our church. And then maybe he's going to impress upon you that you've been seeking his mercies, but there's some places and people that he wants you to extend those mercies to. He wants you to overflow with mercy towards people that you thought were your enemies. Father, thank you. Thank you for this incredible story. A story of a God who loves a king who hated his people. Who loves a king who's lonely and powerful. Who's tried to, to humble You himself. A king who had basically shaken his fist in your face and you came to him at night and said, I care about what you're worried about. Let me give you some answers about the future. Father, we look forward to to digging into those answers, to seeing what that future looks like, but today we just want to pause in this moment and say thank you that you're a God who cares about the thoughts, the worries, the concerns of our hearts. And I pray that nobody would walk out of here today bearing their own burdens, but that they would cast their cares on you, knowing that you care for them, that you want to be God with them. Emmanuel, the one who dwells with human flesh. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.